Welcome to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute's Data Science Zoominar podcast. Our Zoominars feature interactive conversations with data science experts working across a wide spectrum of applications in industry, government, and academia. The conversations are moderated by faculty from the Department of Data Science at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode, Rafael Irizarry talks with Sir David Spiegelhalter from the University of Cambridge on communicating statistical findings effectively. Welcome everybody to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute Data Science Zoominar. Today, we are super excited to have David Spiegelhalter with us. Uh, David was the chair of the Winston Center for Risk and Evidence Communication, which is dedicated to improving the way that quantitative evidence is used in society. He has been an applied statistician for over four decades, three decades, and has been involved in several projects with important implications. He's, uh, he is a, a statistician in the public eye, definitely, and we'll be talking about that. His academic work is focused on raising statistics, including being the co-developer of bugs and wind bugs, a piece of software a lot of us have used, uh, and also biomedical applications and science communication. He was, he was won numerous awards for his work, including being knighted in 2014, and he is the author of the very popular book, The Art of Statistics, which I highly recommend. You will read it in between two and three days. It's very interesting, You'll, hard to put down. And it, even for statisticians that already know most of the statistics in it, it's a great read because it helps you, it can help you explain it and, and maybe think about it in slightly different ways. So thanks, David, uh, for joining us. No, great pleasure um, to be here. Thank you. So I'll go ahead and start right away with, um, with my first question. So I think that we're at a crucial point right now in science with data at the center. Uh, we've seen it amplified during the COVID pandemic and statistics has, great, statistics has greatly matured as a field during the 20th century to the point that it's used in most scientific dis disciplines. But recently, when I say recently, I guess I mean past 10, 20 years, we've, we've seen a shift to data driven research that makes statistics even more central to science. However, uh, statistics education, at least in my opinion, has lagged a bit behind. And as a result, you have a, a in my, what I think is a worrisome increase in the number of scientists using statistics, interpreting data without really understanding uh, statistics. And I think your, your efforts to improve understanding of statistics and the, and the way we communicate uncertainty in particular are key to the continued success of, of the scientific enterprise. So my question after all, after giving you that opinion is what, what do you think the future holds? Or if you disagree with, with some of what I said, please let us know. Okay, no, I, I basically agree with what you said is that you know I've been in statistics for a long time. And um, back when I started, yeah, it, was, it had a fairly low profile and people were tended to be rather obsessed with the philosophy and so on. And, um, and, and you couldn't actually do that much anyway. You had these big programs like SPSS and BMDP. Um, and then S came along and then R and, and then modern computing and Monte Carlo methods and so on. And suddenly, you know, we could do so much. And uh, it's been a very exciting time. It's been a great time to be in statistics, to watch it develop. And I think the rise of data science is just wonderful. It's, it, it is very good because it, it 
you know, I, I regard, you know, data science as something which is bigger than statistics. Uh, statistics, st ideas of statistical inference overlap in the Venn diagram. Obviously, they're terribly important, but data science is so much bigger in, in, in terms of, um, you know, what its, what its ambitions are and what, and what it can be applied to. So uh, I, th I'm, I think this is all very, very exciting. Um, I wrote the book. I was going to call it Statistics for Data Science because the whole point of it, I think, was to bring the important and challenging ideas of statistical inference um, to an audience that may be, it would be actually be quite adept at doing the computation and doing the, um, you know, doing the doing and doing things with data. But, um, you know, I always just quote Nate Silver's quoting from uh, The Signal and the Noise, where he says the data does not speak for itself. We imbue it with meaning. I start my book with that quote from Nate. And um, I believe that very strongly, that just because we've got masses of data, it doesn't just offer up its secrets like some magic potion that reveals itself, like some oracle. We've got to be very careful about the claims we make on the basis of the data. And that's what statistical inference is about, I think. Reliable, trustworthy claims arising from data. And I, so I, I, and of course, this COVID business has brought this home, you know, so strongly. The claims that are made backwards and forwards, everyone's saying what they think, and they're always saying they've got evidence for it. And there's always statistics, they're always quoting to back it up. So it's a complete, you know, um, battleground out there um, using statistics, which I think is great, is wonderful. And um, I mean, in a way, it is particularly challenging because it means the public is suddenly being exposed to the uncertainties of the science, the disputes in the science and the, and the numbers, the unreliability of so much data. And so any uh, illusion, that, which was wrong, they had that somehow data were facts about the world, true facts, and that science was a collection of fixed knowledge, um, you know, I hope has gone out the window because that's actually wrong. But it, it, it does mean that, um, you know, the, the, there is this this um, challenge to our professions um, to to deal with that in an open and honest way. Okay, um, yeah, education, education. Um, I've I've been very influenced by um, Andrew Gelman and his approach to statistics education. I've been very influenced by um, the New Zealand people. You know, who yeah, New Zealand is is essentially the world centre for statistics education, and not just because of the R. Um, you know, um, relationship, relationship. They've been working both in schools and in the university, especially Auckland, um, to develop a real philosophy of statistics education. And I, when I've been to ASA meetings, I always go to the educational ones to see the arguments that are going on. And I've been hugely influenced. And if you look at the book, you'll notice the, the effect of this influence. First of all, probability theory doesn't appear until two thirds of the way through. Um, uh, statistical inference in terms of, you know, the formula that give rise to confidence interval, you know, three quarters of the way through. Um, and, and because the issues, the important issues about statistics and what you can learn from data come a much bigger than just this business of, you know, the tests we do and the estimates we do and this sort of stuff. They're far more concerned with the quality of the data, the biases in it, what can we actually answer our questions with the data, 
Um, it, can we conclude causation, no matter how, what, how fancy an analysis we do? What sort of designs might we, we choose when we could actually experiment? And so on, and all these, I've mean, got almost nothing to do with statistical inference. And uh, what I found is that, and this was again stolen from New Zealand, I think, is that you can get through all the ideas of sampling, of sample and population and generalization, just with the idea of picking at random. That's all you need. You don't need probability theory. You just need the idea of picking at random. And every kid knows about picking at random. And so you can get so far from that. And so therefore I introduced bootstrapping before the formulas for confidence intervals. Not that I yeah, give that, the formulas for confidence that, intervals. That, that so, seems to be a common theme I, I, that I see. I, I, in, in my, in my uh, online book, we do the same. We, we do Monte Carlo before we even introduce any for probability formulas. Yeah, yeah, And absolutely. with a computer, being able to run it on the computer, yep. like the student can actually see it happen in yep. front of them. And then, and then for me, what I argue is that the mathematical approach that we all learn and which I've taught is just a neat way of not having to do these enormous computer exactly. <laughs> It's a shortcut. Wow, we can just use a formula and get the answer. But right. that's but it's the mathematics should not drive the conclusions. It could, should be just seen as a useful tool at the end. And I, I it took me ages. I could have spent ages rearranging chapters and all this kind of stuff. Um, one of the problems with that is is Bayesian methods. Now, I've been, you know, my whole career has been in Bayesian methods. You know, I, I was indoctrinated into it really when I was eighteen. I think, yeah, as as the and and I'm, you know, ideologically, I well, we might as well get onto this. I'm a convinced subjectivist Bayesian, you know, and that's where I was brought up, and that's why I still believe that. Although I use all sorts of methods the whole time. If you scratch me and ask me what probability is, I'll I'll take a completely subjectivist line on that. It doesn't exist, for example. So, um, I, but Bayesian methods do require probability theory. After all, you know, it's a theorem of probability. And so, sadly, I found is that Bayesian I, the methods had to be left until a lot later, until nearly the end of the book, um, which I think is unfortunate. Although we can still bring in the ideas that um, probability is about judgment, it's about assessment. It's not a property of the outside world, um, you know, much earlier on, which I do. Yeah, it, it is easier to do a frequentist simulation than a Bayesian one. Not, but it still can be done, but I see what you're oh, saying yeah. that it's, yeah. 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 So on a, on a related topic, this is in a way uh, a concern that, that, that I've, that I've uh, that's, it's a concern I have now after teaching data science for, for I don't know how many years now, that I, I do take that approach that we start with without formulas. But and then we have all these students that are very happy about it because all of a sudden they like the statistics class, right? And they and they can actually <laughs> do stuff. Yeah. But that 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 happiness ends when we start talking about probability and inference for many yeah. of them. The, the sample, as soon as you get to the sample distribution of the sample mean, that's it. So but but then I, I worry that that it, we're because we like happy students that we're skipping. I mean, not all, not everybody, but and clearly not not you and your book. But that some there's this there's this uh, you know there's this tendency to to teach data science courses without probability and inference, oh, which which I, I think is a huge mistake. I, I don't know. Yeah, I would I would go. I think it needs to be in there um, because otherwise you've not really got a set of principles. Um, from which to to act, you know, maybe they're idealized principles and probability models, which of course don't exist and are all wrong, but are incredibly useful. 
um, the ideas of, of statistical inference as it, as it is carried out very usefully throughout the whole of science, you know, I think that is an integral part of data science. Maybe not for everybody. I, I think you could actually, you know, you could do a lot. In, um, you can get, as I said, you can get a huge long way. You can even build, you know, predictive algorithms and so on. You don't need probability theory for that until, as I show in the, as I mentioned, because I do that in the book before probability theory, except, of course, a decent algorithm will produce a probability. And then you've got the idea of how do you assess how good those probabilities are, and which I think is absolutely vital the assessment of the trustworthiness of the probabilities that come out of an algorithm, no matter how it was generated, whether it's a logistic regression or a random forest or whatever it was, um, you know, when it gives a probability, you want to know whether you can believe it or not. And, and I think this is a much more core issue than, in a way, a lot of statistical inferences. So I, yeah. I'd be a bit torn. I, I think that in data science, there's a huge amount you can do before you bring in probability and statistical inference, but it is a, a very important part, but you must recognize that it's not, not all students are going to warm to it, perhaps. Right. Right. And if you want to be the, the main analyst in, in any kind of project, well, I mean, I guess there's an exception where summary statistics is enough, but in most, most analyses, you will need to understand it and, and also know, know some of what already exists or you're not reinventing the wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, so now related to that that same idea is the so something that I, that I I saw in your book you 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 actually uh, uh, say it explicitly. There's a difference between data science and data literacy, and yeah. and and I guess when we teach that that I think is an important thing we need to accept is that uh, some students. I mean, given the world we live in, everybody needs data literacy. I think pretty much. Yeah. But data science is not is something else, and it's it doesn't mean we can't teach students how to understand a paper that or a news article yep. that talks about statistics without being able to reproduce the analysis themselves, for example. Yeah. Do you have do you have, you have any experience in in teaching this or dealing with your in well, your university? I mean, were, not explicit courses of data literacy, because as you as you say, data literacy is something to do with the whole of society both when, whether you're a citizen or whether you're a professional or whatever. I mean, just broadly, I would say data science is the act of actually creating, doing the work and producing things. Mm -hmm. And data literacy can include that, but actually is much more to, concerned as, as a consumer, as the audience to claims based on data, to which we all are. And again, this COVID crisis, we have been, you know, an audience to countless claims and let alone your elections. I mean, so, you know, there's endless stuff that for which we are the audience and we need to be able to exercise some judicial, you know, crit critique or, you know, some sort of skepticism or argument about it. We need to be able to critique what, what the claims are being made. And so I, I believe this is, uh, and I, God, I, you know, many people have said this is an essential skill for modern citizenry and modern professions across the whole board um, is, is data literacy. And that means the ability to um, take apart and ask the right questions when someone's making a claim based on data and not just be baffled by it because, oh, they said, oh, we used a machine learning algorithm or we use this, you know, and we've got this and a whole other jargon and big numbers and this sort of nonsense. So, um, you know, you need to be able to say, no, hang on, hang on. I want some, I want some trustworthy communication of these numbers. Tell me what's really going on. We need to be able to understand that. Not everybody. Some people might just have to take it on trust, but 
Um, and, and, you know, I, I think this is terribly important. And it is difficult. Um, you could say, you know, in the way I work in that area, not just me, but many people, the whole time in that nearly all my communication during the COVID thing has been educational in some process. It's not been arguing for lockdown or anti-lockdown or for masks or anti-masks. No, I won't touch any of that stuff. I've got no agenda. I've got, I'm not on anybody's side. I don't want, I'm not going to tell anyone what to do or even advise them what to do and what should be done. That's not my job. My job is to try to clarify the arguments. And if someone's making a really stupid argument, to point it out, you know, with as tough as you can make it. So I can go, really go in with um, hard on somebody who's manipulating the, the argument through misuse of data or misuse of statistics. So, um, I, but I'm not, it doesn't mean I, you know, I'm on one side or another. Does anybody who misuses the data, um, I, I feel I can critique. Can I just show you one thing? Can I show Absolutely. you the kind of thing I've been doing uh, during Absolutely. this COVID crisis? Um, Absolutely. I just want to uh, uh, let me just see if I can make this work. Um, uh, I might be able to make this work. Okay, so what I'm going to do is just to show you a brief. Um, uh, I'm going to try to share my screen. Um, and uh, I'm going to show you a brief little into a clip from an interview I did in the main politics program of in the UK. It was a Sunday morning, the Andrew Marshall. This was back in May. And this is about um, we were getting then daily briefings from the prime minister and others in which there are a lot of statistics being quoted. Um, okay. So this is what I said. Share computer sound, optimize screen share. Okay. And I hope, tell me if you can't hear it. They're now very familiar with these these daily press briefings. How well are they working, do you think? Well, I, I watched yesterday's, and frankly, I found it completely embarrassing. Um, we get told lots of big numbers, imprecise numbers of tests being done, 96,878. Well, that's not how many were done yesterday. They includes people that were posted out, tests, tests that were posted out. We're told 31,587 people have died. No, they haven't. It's far more than that. So I think this is, you know, actually not a trustworthy communication of statistics. And it's such a missed opportunity. You know, the public out there who are broadly very supportive of the measures they're hungry for details for facts for genuine information and yet they get fed this well, you know what i call number theater um which seems to be coordinated really much more by you know a number 10 communications team rather than genuinely trying to inform people about what's going on i just wish that the data was being brought together and presented by people who really knew uh, its strengths and limitations and could treat the audience with some um respect okay so that very good yeah that was my kind of diatribe <laughs> and let me see if i can get rid of that and um uh, well, you know, what am I doing? Stop sharing, okay? Yeah, so that was my kind of diatribe I got a chance to do, which went a bit viral and got mentioned all over the place. So I, I don't do that kind of attack um, often, um, but I, it was just showed, I think, how intensely irritated um, I, you know, statisticians were getting by the way in which numbers were just being pulled out of a hat and waved about, here's a big number, here's another big number. And then there's well, the dashboards with the red thing. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and some terrible, awful graphs that nobody could read and you couldn't, didn't know what they meant. No, really dreadful stuff. So, um, and it has got better, a bit, a bit better. Yeah, that was, I like the point about the, the number theater, the, uh, theater. Uh, in particular when they're putting out these numbers that are 
very precise, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 72,158. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. But, as soon as someone starts quoting numbers to, you know, six significant figures, you know you just shouldn't take any notice of them. But, and that is one, there's one that, that I, I continue to see uh, as a problem is that what because the, the measured cases, the detected cases are reported as if that's the number of people that have COVID, right? It's like they're not taking into account all, all the ones well, that aren't being measured. The, yeah, I mean, I don't know about in the US, UK, the media has finally realized that. And also they, they, they report them every day, but that's the number that have been reported on that day. Actually, they happened. You know, maybe ages ago. Sometimes that some of the deaths happened ages ago. So, but and so still, the media will sometimes say, you know, 574 deaths happened yesterday. So, which is just, you know, just completely wrong. So, um, it is a problem that, in a way, so many more journalists have been dealing with numbers more than would normally deal with numbers, uh, and who are not yeah. very data literate. They're just not data literate. However, some of them have really got got good, got good. You know, there, there is always the problem with diagnostic tests, false positive rates and predictive value when you get a positive, what, what proportion of positive tests are actually false positive, and terribly misleading stuff, you know, very badly explained on the whole. But some journalists have really got quite good at it. And Yeah, no, I, I had that experience um, with Nicholas Kristof from New York Times asked me to help him with something. And I was very impressed. Yeah by how quickly he, he understood statistical yep. concepts and also how open he was for, for me when I, when I told him that what he, was, what he wanted to say was, was, which was a little bit sensationalist, was not quite right, he immediately yeah. stopped it. Like he, I, he was I, very open to that, to that once you explained to them why yep. it wasn't quite right. I, it's been a great time to be a statistician dealing with the media because it's, in a way it's a seller's market. They need you so much. They can't afford to upset you too much because they so want, you know, independent, some fairly independent input and critique and commentary. Um, and so they're actually extremely generous. So, I mean, I, I know it's more familiar in the U US, I think, but in the UK, journalists almost never um, give you back your quotes, you know, allow you to check the quotes. They never tell you what they're going to use. But it's now journalists, they do, they do do it. Partly, I just demand it. Now. I, you know, I won't. I won't just have a, a conversation with a journalist. So I'm not going to do it. You, I'll give you some quotes, or if I have a conversation, you, you've got to tell me what quotes you're using. And uh, and I, I, in a way, I'm. It's uh, we can make demands now in a way that we never could. I, and I've had newspaper headlines changed. I've had newspaper, you know, because I just complain, just phone up and complain and shout and scream, and uh, and it works. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, that that leads me to one of my questions that I, I wanted to ask you, um, related to the press and how to communicate uncertainty. And it's this experience I had with uh, estimating excess deaths in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Uh, we um, we I experienced much of what you described. We, there was a press release which I edited very uh, aggressively to to make it clear that that. Um, it, there was uncertainty in our measure. Uh, I did use confidence and it was an, I, and I, I think you're gonna tell me that was a mistake and I think I might agree <laughs> with that. But I was like every number, take out all the numbers and instead put in a confidence interval. That was what I was trying to go for so that the uncertainty was very in your face. It was a very unpre in, unprecise number because we used a survey and yeah. and it wasn't what the paper wasn't just about that, but that was like the press just went 
crazy over over that, and they took the number, the, the middle of the confidence interval, and went with it. Sorry, did you uh, did you give the estimate, or did they take the middle of the range? No, no, we did give it. We, we did give oh, it. No. Yeah, no, I, I, that's right. That's was so. The, the the other thing we did that was um, that now I realize maybe it was a mistake was we we put the number, the estimate, we rounded it to to, to the nearest integer. Right, so it was four six four five, which now you'll you'll see. Oh. Like, if you go if you go to Puerto Rico, that number is 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 graffitied around the the, the walls of some parts of the island. Yeah. Uh, right. So then, when you give that number, the precision was wasn't enough to really give that. So maybe we should have said four thousand, or or we should have said more than eight hundred. Yeah. But but that's. Do you have a rule of thumb for what how to do that? How to report? Yeah. Okay. Imprecise estimates like this. Yeah, it's very, very tricky. The first thing is, you know, we uh, I work with a team of psychologists now. We've been doing quite a lot of research in which we look at um, how giving a range for a number influences people's trust in the source. And if you can give a range, there's no decrease in trust in the source. So the first thing is you've got to be unapologetic about expressing uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, now, the issue there is about which range do you give? Do you have to give 95% or could you give interquartile, something a bit narrower, which again, I think is quite reasonable because sometimes these things you know, look so wide, it's like you're not giving any information at all. Um, because you know you do really should really communicate that you give a range the problem is that and they people have done some research on that is that many people might interpret it oh it's equally likely to be anywhere in the range which it isn't and they might even take the higher one yeah 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 <laughs> as, could as many as as many as oh no but oh there's a trick to to defeat that um people were doing that on climate change when they give a range of future temperatures people were saying oh it could be as high as 12 degrees and um change and um, I was in a group that changed the wording of the communication. And so what we communicated is it's very unlikely to be greater than 12 degrees. Same number, just the top end of the interval. And but it changes that it's changing it from a negative to a positive frame. And, and so that does not attract the same kind of, you know, obsessive attention. So purely the wording about what the top end of an interval does can change its impact and its communication. We have to be aware of those kinds of things about just the framing of the numbers to make a massive difference. So basically, I think a range, um, ideally, you don't give the point estimate. When the yeah. bank of right. give its uh, forecasts for um, inflation, things like that, they don't give a point estimate. They just do a fan chart and they give a 30%, 60% and 90% interval, which I really like in different shades. So the eye is drawn to the center, to the, to the middle, to, but, but not to a point. If you do it that, visually, yeah, that, that, I think it's a very effective way to do it. Yeah. Well, we had we had the plots that those are definitely there with a the big, in, you know, the dot. Yeah, and the, the, big, big, the big, big thing. But it, as but, soon as you get the central number, that's all they will use. But and then how about um, significant digits? Oh, when, you, got, you, you have. Got, you shouldn't have done that. Is you know, yeah, yeah. But what, what is a, Do you have a rule of thumb about how many to include given? If you know well, your standard only, error, only depends on the width of the interval. Yeah. I mean, so. So if the interval is takes you from 4,900 to 4,200 or something like that, you should certainly only give it to two figures. So you, yeah. you should give it you should give it to the precision that the interval allows you to give. So it's, it's, it's the number of significant figures is governed by the width of the interval. So yeah, you, sure. know, you should just use lots of lot, you know, very few significant figures. And that encourages a feeling of uncertainty because if you just said 4,000, Nobody believes there are actually right. four thousand, and so it actually works rather well 
I mean, it, the other thing is just to say around 4,000, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because that's actually all you say, around 4,500. No, that's all you can say. Um, and so I think, you know, that's actually being honest and communicates to any reader, well, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty there. Yeah, no, that that's definitely definitely lesson learned. Uh, the, other, the, 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 other thing, the other message the, I always say is that for all this stuff, there's no correct way to do any of this is to test it. Um, if you've got an important message out, test it on audiences to see what they're getting from it. Even if it's just your colleagues, your friends, your family, test it out. Um, um, because we can't, we find it very difficult to judge these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Testing it out. I do do that now with my yeah, daughters just, in particular. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> ask, ask your that kids you understand or... what this means? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, ask, ask uh, your kids. That's right. Uh, that's a uh, good advice but you know what that's like uh wh what class do we learn this in 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 a phd in statistics that's not maybe we should have a oh well, no it's, a two-week well, workshop for everybody how to I, how to I talk to the communication is an integral part of the what you might call the data cycle which i build build a whole book around mm -hmm. which is you know which starts with a problem then it goes on to just seeing if there is any data that could help you answer the problem and then there's collecting and designing designing the sound cleaning the data getting it and then there's the analysis that little just one little bit and then there's the conclusions and the communication so i think every you know statistician and data scientist should have communication skills and that includes um you know not only in terms of visualizations which is accepted as of course as a very important part of data science and statistics not just visualizations but also verbal explanations we're, it's such a, we've, we're in the Royal Statistical Society now, we've got ambassadors and we train, we give them media training. And I, I help with some of that. And it's so, it's wonderful. Um, you know, we, we just say, well, okay, explain a confidence interval or whatever like that, or explain what this interval means. And then they start saying, oh, this is a confidence interval. So you can't say, use the term confidence interval. Sorry, you can't use it. You're not allowed to come on to it without that. And I want it in the length of a tweet. So they're allowed a paragraph and then they have to do it in a, in a, in a in um, in length of tweet so you know it's a real challenge that you get to explain things and so it means you can never do it so it's absolutely right it's just got to be not wrong <laughs> mm -hmm. and we must and, we mustn't be too pedantic about it and, and you're saying yeah the pedantic thing like like the confidence interval is very rare for a non-statistician to get right well i don't bother the definition nobody cares, nobody cares. So, so then we well, so some statisticians get really angry at you. Oh, I do. Oh, I do. <laughs> Among statisticians, I get obsessively angry with if they people get it wrong and, and don't distinguish between a Bayesian and a competence interval. I, I'm obsessively angry with it. Um, but in if you're talking to the general public, it's a complete waste of time to go into it. What I'm interested, but you know, but you're saying you say we shouldn't even use that the term. Just like, no, no, I wouldn't. Yeah. I've never used the term competence interval. I mean, what's interesting, almost all the COVID modeling going on is Bayesian now, so that. These are all credible intervals. Um, and so I, I, I would just use margin of error, range, or possibly uncertainty interval. Um, yeah. So one of those, you don't have to call it a confidence interval. Who cares? But can I show you something else? What do you think about um, the, <laughs> this? Uh, I, because, the, the un, as I said, uncertainty communication is so important. So we always emphasize, you know, part of demonstrating trustworthiness is. Um, you know, is admitting uncertainty about what you know. So you can give a range by the number, which I think is very valuable, doesn't decrease trust. Um, and, but you can also acknowledge the fact that the evidence isn't very good. 
And this is something that uh, I think is incredibly important that we should be get better at, at just admitting that our models aren't very good. So um, th th this, is, um, this is an example. I don't know what you think about this. So in the UK at the moment, you know, the R number, you know, which is the average number of per people that each um, person with COVID infects, um, you know, there's eight different modeling groups in the UK, all trying to estimate R. So all trying to estimate the average, all trying to estimate the same quantity from essentially the same data. They've got multiple data sources. And this recently was the eight different estimates from the different groups with their intervals. They're all doing Bayesian modeling. So these are, are credible intervals. And look at them. They're all over the place. Well, you know, they all broadly say, you know, it's not that high. You know, it's roughly between one and two somewhere. Um, but look at the precision of some of those estimates. And they don't even overlap. Now, this is the same quantity being estimated from the same data, and yet the intervals don't even overlap. Think how disastrous it would be if the, just, if the government was just looking at one, one of these groups. Now, actually, seeing them like that, then they all get together in a room and they decide, well, that's, that's, we're going to say that, and that's going to be <laughs> public. And that's what they get to. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I don't know what you feel about this, but the point is that this is precision, but not accuracy. They can't all be right. They don't even know that. Because no. um, they're all the uncertainty estimates in the classic Bayesian way, unfortunately. Bayesian estimates are conditional on the truth of the model. They come out of the probability model. Right. Yet, so the, the, there's a variability here that is not described in the interval having exactly, to do with how, pe exactly. how people choose the model. And that's yeah. really hard there's to the, the, the between model and the, the model and basic uncertainty or doubt about the model, the systematic so, biases. Yeah coming in from the model um, are not being reflected in those intervals. So those intervals right. are deeply unreliable. Um, and, uh, and that's what's happening. And that's what you get if you just feed something through models. So thank goodness Have there's you, eight, eight teams doing it. This reminds me of that famous um, enduring values paper where they have the speed of light estimates. Oh, yes, uh, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and when I've talked about this before, someone has mentioned about metrology. And I'm a big fan. I didn't, statisticians and data don't know about metrology enough, which is like the speed of light. You're trying to measure things, and in mm. that whole area, they they've seen seen this for you know years, centuries. They've known this that the essentially within experiment estimates of precision are too far too tight, don't reflect the real uncertainties. And so they got type A and type B uncertainty. This is type A uncertainty. Type B uncertainty is to do with the systematic biases because of the measurement mm. process. And they, they are happy for those to be assessed subjectively as a matter of judgment. But, but here, the uncertainty comes from the, the, the statisticians, <laughs> the way they work. It's not, well, it's, they, not just, it's not the measurement, right? Well, no, no, but it's the model. Yeah, it's the fact they yeah. all choose different structures, their models. Some of them using complicated ones, some of them using simple ones. Of course, the more simple ones will tend to lead to the tighter intervals. So it's a deeply disillusioned. So I just- so it's, it's interesting that when I see that plot- Yeah. I think that's not that bad, <laughs> given what I've given what I've seen in my life. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. but but as I pointed out, thank goodness there's eight of them doing yeah, it. Right, Let me yeah, see right. them all. I mean, wouldn't right. that be awful if we just saw one of them? You know, that right. That plot. Cool. That plot is so much more informative than a single one. Exactly. So it's yeah. really not a bad thing, but it does show all models are wrong and some are useful, and that's why I do think that any team communicating those should also say their reliability in the evidence. So I'd just like to show some people who are doing that. Um, in the UK, we've got these what work centers that uh, evaluate the evidence for different policies. And incredibly important, they're brilliant. And they've got one for um, education, for example, 
and they produce a toolkit where they, they list all these different things you can do in the classroom. And, um, and they, it's like TripAdvisor. They give them star ratings um, depending on, you know, well, you know, so here, aspiration intervention. So that's quite expensive. Uh -huh. um, this is the estimate of how many months of educational gain there is. So it doesn't seem to work. And this is a measure of how good the evidence is. In other words, it's rubbish evidence anyway. Huh. But down here, collaborative learning it's very cheap, seems to work, and there's good evidence. So yeah. I, I, I think rather than some completely spurious confidence interval or interval, I think this is very powerful. And um, what we found, we've got our sage as our- And I'm sorry, uh, can I, what, what yeah. are, I, I missed how are those little locks- um, Yeah, well, it's, I, a, it's, a, it's a committee that does it? Yeah, it's a kind of, they, but they'll, they'll have some guidelines as how to assess the strength of the evidence. It's very, in medicine, there's a grade system, which is a star rating uh, just with four levels. And there, there's a kind of algorithm. You know, if you're a randomized trial, you start off at three and then you might go up for some things and down for another. So, you know, every area has got its own kind of rules of thumb for deciding those. But you can That's drill great. down and find out where it came from. I think this is really powerful. And I, I love it. I love it. I've always had this idea that, no, no, I, I've had an idea that, you know, never implemented it because it seems hard to do, which you form a committee that takes the papers in, in biomedicine that seem yep. to get the most attention because we don't have time to read them all. No. But at least take the ones that are getting attention and, and give them some kind of grade like that. Give them a star it, rating. Yeah. Because some of them are obviously wrong to statisticians. Yeah. Like the, the yeah. I mean, the most famous ones are like the, the, the this Potty Nevins scandal from Duke. That was all, all the statisticians yeah. knew the paper was wrong, but the... Yeah. The, the editors and other referees took a, a little bit longer to, to catch up. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I mean, I, the trouble is you might get sued. Uh, so I, I'd be careful. <laughs> I'd be careful yeah. with that with that idea. <laughs> but but Sage is the committee of scientists that make give the advice to the government, and they're doing this at the moment. So you know when they were reviewing the evidence for wearing face coverings outdoors, they said very low impact, and they got high confidence. You know, there's no point in wearing face masks outdoors, they claim. Whereas closure of places of worship and community centers reduce our, our you know, the interval is up to between 0 and 0.1, but they're not even really confident about that interval. And some mm -hmm. of the stuff they do, they just say they've got low confidence of what these impacts are. So I, I think this is a really powerful idea and something I'm kind of trying to promote in um, any evidence communication that just giving an interval is not enough if because i don't believe the interval <laughs> yeah no and it's but it's tricky right because you you're gonna be seen as wishy-washy that's the thing well, yeah but I, that's the point i think that um yeah i i think that again our research shows that if you, you know, what we call it unapologetic uncertainty you know, mm -hmm. if you just say we know a lot this is what we know but we don't know this and just be mm -hmm. honest then there's no reduction in trust in the source. So we're really encouraging people to, to get up there, um, you know, to yeah, get up there and uh, proclaim their uncertainty. Oh, I'll, I'll take that advice. So I, I'm, I'm sorry, I've been neglecting the, the audience. Uh, so let me ask at least one of the questions. Uh, do you have any advice for statisticians for whom the growth of data science has meant more and more colleagues with poor understanding of probability and mathematics? This is from Dan Hapti. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, that's why I wrote the book. 
um, although I wasn't doing the mathematics in, in any great detail, it was to try to point out to people doing data science that there is this whole, this is this world of, of statistical inference, you know, probability-based statistical inference, which sort of, you know, has been quite useful for a hundred and something, you know, 150 years or so. So um, that, you know, don't ignore it. You know, it's all been, it's all there. It's very useful. Don't ignore it. Don't think that the data is going to just give up its secrets. So um, I, I do think, I'm not sure about advice. I think, um, I think show, demonstrate, demonstrate by your work that um, a knowledge of probability modeling and statistical inference and evidence-based conclusions, uh, et cetera, um, are valuable. I think you have to demonstrate. I think, you know, you've got to prove it all over again that this is a valuable addition to those wonderful data skills that so many people have got now. Um, and, and the you know, general ideas, and, and in particular when, um, where in so many areas, particular where when it is data science being used in science, um, because then we, the reliability of your claims is absolutely essential. You can't just come up with something that works quite well. I mean, if you're doing a, if you're doing a recommendation system or something like that, then obviously you've got some things you're trying to match, you're trying to optimize, and so on, and you try lots of stuff, and, it, and you find the one that works, and that's fine. It's a purely empirical bit of work. But if you're trying to do something where you're actually trying to discover the, something about the truth about the world, then that's not enough. Um, you have to be able to say, you have to be able to state your conclusion and your confidence in that conclusion, and the confidence must be reliable. It's this sort of second order property that statistics is so interested in that it not only wants to make an estimate or a claim, it wants to be able to say how confident you are in that claim. And for that, and what we've just been talking about is that that confidence itself should be a reliable statement. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you have yeah, to demonstrate I, it. I think you've got to earn it. You've got to earn it. You've got to earn it. That's what I was yeah. going to say that, that it and it takes time to earn it. It doesn't just happen because you have a yeah. degree or, or just because yeah. you make a statement. But I, I mean, the other thing is that, and I suppose we're coming back to the original thing, is that you do have to revise statistics teaching. You know, if you're mm -hmm. going to try to get you know, data, people are coming up from, a lot of people coming into data science from all sorts of areas, which is great. It's wonderful. But if you then say, oh, now we're going to do statistics and you immediately plow into the sample distribution, the sample mean, well, God's sakes, you know, really, you know, who's going to want to endure that? Um, so I think that you do need to think very carefully about how that education is done. Great. Well, we're out of, almost out of time, so I'll, let you, I'll ask that you give final thoughts for them, what those, you know, to add to that to our audience before we go. Um, any final thoughts for our data science audience? Oh, I know. I, I think it's just it's such a fantastic profession to be in. I mean, it is really an exciting time. Um, and but I think that you know what you have to really watch out for is is trustworthy claims. Um, because you may be able to do something quite fancy and, and clever and things like that. It's just like, you know, if you've got a, a visualization, you really got to check whether it's telling the appropriate story and isn't just looking good. I mean, I've seen a lot of visualizations that I think, oh, you know, at first it looks pretty. And I think, actually, really, what's the point of this? You know, it's just, it's just doing it for the sake of it. So, um, no, I think trustworthy communication. Um, and, and to, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's basically my running theme um, and that uh, yeah probability and statistics are valuable things but it's not all there is at all.
All right. Well, thanks, David, for joining us. Here's the book. I highly recommend it. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> Should be out in paperback next year, next year as well. So with with some of the with the typos corrected. Okay, <laughs> great. Well, thanks again, David, and it was Not, great having you. Not at all. Uh, great, great pleasure. Thank you very I much. I hope to talk to you soon in the future. Yeah, okay, great. Bye, Thank everybody. You.